Well, good morning, church, and welcome to week two of a short series that we're calling It's Not About You. It's not about you. And really, the series, what we've been doing um, over the last week and this week and, and next week as well, is we've been exploring some of the lies that the enemy and that society like to tell us about what life is about, what life, what matters in life. And really, society likes to tell us that life is about two things. It's about being happy and not suffering. Like, that sounds like a pretty good life, but, but in turn, society tells us that in order to be happy and to not suffer, we need to focus on ourselves. I need to focus on my needs, my desires, my urges, my, my, my wants, and I just believe that God has something greater for us than just to be happy. And so last week, we, we took a dive into the first of three traps. We looked at the ego trap which is the trap that essentially tells us, well, I'm more important than anyone else, so I just need to focus on my needs. And, and we took a look at that trap and the reality that Scripture shows us that it's not about me. It's not about my needs. It's not about my wants. It's actually about others, regarding others as more important than ourselves. And, and after the message, I, I realized something. I realized that, well, God told me this. I realized that I'd actually forgotten to, to say something in that message. And and because I was talking about how life isn't about us, it's about others, and regarding others as more important than ourselves, and I realized that God was actually calling us as a church to do the same thing, that we're not supposed to be a church that's so focused on ourselves and focused on our needs and our wants and our desires, but we need to be a church that's reaching our world with the love of Christ and helping people who are in need. So this past week, we, we decided to give away $1,500 to three different organizations that operate both globally and in our city. We gave some money to an organization called Convoy of Hope, which provides disaster relief worldwide. We, we gave some money to the Bissell Center, which works and operates with impoverished families to help end poverty, and we gave almost 200 meals to, to kids in need through Hope Mission this past week, because it's not about us. It's not about us. And as the year goes on, we're going to keep giving money away. You know, we ask people to give to us and to bless us and to support us, but it's not about us. We want to give to our community and support people in need throughout our city as well. But you see, living free from the ego trap means regarding others as more important than ourselves. But what I realized in prepping this message is, at least for myself, maybe you're better at this than I am, but at least for myself, I find it incredibly difficult to treat people I like as more important than myself. I find it incredibly difficult. I have to remind myself often, like with, with my wife, I have to treat her as more important than myself, and I have to constantly be reminding myself of that reality, especially when I'm tired or stressed or busy or want to do something else other than help with the chores in the house. But what I realized is, as hard as it is to treat someone with respect, as hard as it is to treat someone as more important than ourselves when we like them, it is even more difficult to treat people we don't like with love and respect and to treat them as more important than ourselves, especially people who have hurt us, people who we disagree with. 
Now, in 1 Samuel 24, there's this, there's this story that we find. I love stories because I find that's such a fun way for God to speak to me through stories. And, and we find this story of a guy named David who, at a young age, he had been anointed to be king of Israel. Like, any kids in the room, how cool would that be? Like, at a young age, you're just like, you will be king. Like, yes. It's amazing. And there's one problem, and that was that there was, a, there was a king currently in power, and so David was anointed at a young age, and then there was this process before he could become the king. And, and by the time we find David in 1 Samuel 24, we find that he has been on the run for months. He's been on the run for months from this guy named Saul, the current king of Israel, who's hunting him down simply because he doesn't like him and he wants to kill him. And so it says, 1 Samuel 24, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to look for David and his men. Now, I'll pause there for a second, because if you've been here for a couple weeks, you'd remember Dan talking about 1 Samuel 22 just two weeks ago and, and David in the cave of Adullam. And, and, and at that point where we leave David, where Dan left us in the story, David has 600 men with him. 600 men. The outcasts, the rejects, the people who aren't accepted in society. David has 600 men. And in this moment, Saul's like, no, 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 no. We need 3,000. 3,000 to take him out. It's a little bit of overkill, but he took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to look for David and his men by the... By in the direction of the rocks of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds beside the road. I have no idea why these details are important. No idea why rocks of the wild goats is a thing, but it just feels like somebody, when you have a friend who lives in the country, who's like, go under the train pass, and at the red mailbox, take the second right. And you're like, I don't know if I... All right, cool. Address would be great right now. Um, But he comes to the sheepfolds beside the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now, I love the details the Bible gives because it didn't have to tell us this detail. It just decided there's a cave, and Saul had to relieve himself. And, and for the kids in the room, let me, let me explain what this means. You know when you drink a little too much water, or you eat, and then you're like doing the pee waddle, like, oh, I gotta go to the bathroom? It's essentially what's going on here. Saul is the king, and he has to go poop. Um, just being real. Uh, it's the Bible. <laughs> and it says, now David and his men were sitting in the innermost part of the cave. So Saul's coming in to go to the bathroom, and David and his men are hiding in the back of the cave. And the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Here is the day, David, that you can finally take out Saul. He's been trying to hunt you down. He's been trying to hurt you. Now you can get your revenge. And then David went and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's cloak. You know, this is this interesting story where we find the future king of Israel, David, being hunted down by the current king of Israel, Saul. And Saul is trying to find David in order that he can kill him. You know, this is a little bit more severe than your sibling taking your favorite toy and breaking it. It's a little bit more severe than your coworker going behind your back and bad-mouthing you to your boss. 
This is something on the level of dealing with somebody who is abusive, who is hurtful, who is vengeful, somebody who is trying to sabotage your life simply for their own pleasure. And you know, in this kind of situation, what our society likes to tell us is that, well, revenge is a great option. <laughs> They're trying to hurt you, hurt them back. They broke your toy, break their toy. They badmouthed you, you badmouthed them. They hurt you, you hurt them. And David in this moment has a chance to get it revenge, but instead he just goes and he cuts off the corner of Saul's cloak. So I want to talk to you this morning about a trap that I think we fall into, a trap that where because of something someone did or because we don't like somebody or because we have a different opinion than they do, we treat them as less important than, the, than ourselves. It's a trap that I'm calling the bias trap. Let's pray. Father God, I just pray, Lord, over all of us, Lord. Open our ears to hear what you have for us this morning, God, and to receive what you are saying, God. Let me be a mouthpiece, an effective mouthpiece of yours, God, that, that your word will proceed here, Lord, that we will receive it and be transformed by the power of your word. I pray this in your name. Amen. The bias trap. You know, I don't know about you, but I've found over the past several years that as time has gone on, I have become more and more aware of the different areas where, or, or the different, yeah, the different areas where I've been biased both towards myself and towards others. See, I've been going through a soul care with, with a, gr a group here at Gateway, and, and it's been really great. We're only two weeks in, but God's already spoken to me so much about biases and things that I believed about myself. But, but, but I've realized all of these different biases that really affect the way that I treat myself and I treat others, and it's affected my relationships with people around me. Because, you know, when it's easy when you experience stuff in life to start to categorize things as good experiences and bad experiences and then let those experiences actually control your perception of that event. It's like you do walking down this one street and you slip and fall. Well, next time you're walking down that street, you'll probably be a little bit more careful. It affects our, our perception of a, of a situation. Think about it this way. How many of you have ever had a parent or a spouse or a significant other say one of these two phrases to you? You always do fill in the blank, or you never do fill in the blank. You always do something bad, and you never do something good. For the husbands in the room, it's you always forget to take out the trash. A little bit relatable. Or, my wife said this to me before. You never replace the toilet paper roll after it's empty. Just speaking of real issues here. And often for the husbands in return, you think, well, you're always complaining. Hopefully you don't say that out loud. That would be bad. But you always, or you never, it's these absolute statements that, that I know many of us have experienced that it's essentially 
used to express an annoyance or a grievance or a problem that we have with someone else. And, and with kids, it's simpler, but it's still the same. It's, you always get to play with the Legos first. I don't know if Legos are cool anymore. I loved them as a kid. They always cool? All right. Or, you never let me have a turn with the Xbox. And really, it's these absolute statements that we use as a framework to define how we see someone else. It's this thing that psychologically for our brains, essentially, how it works is, is our brains, in order to process situations faster, process situations and people faster, we like to put things into boxes so that we can quickly and easily understand them. So you meet somebody who's nice, and you put them in, okay, they're in the nice box, and you're just going to define them and assume that they're going to be like every other nice person you've met. Or you meet somebody who's mean, well, you're going to put them in the mean box and assume that they're like every other mean person that, that you've ever done. But the problem with putting somebody in a box is, is that the box starts to shape how we see the person, and then it sharp, starts to shape how, what we expect from the person, and then it become, starts to become a bias towards the person that affects every aspect of how we view them. For example, if your wife believes you're lazy, she's going to be micromanaging you as you try and do the chores. Or if you don't believe that your brother or sister cares about you, you're not going to go to them when you're hurting. Or if your husband thinks you're bad with money, he might not give you a credit card. Just absolutes that create bias. And, and really, this is not something that's just limited to our families. It's family day, so I like to use families as an example. It's something that is actually all around in society around us. Let, let me illustrate this for you. So I've got some boxes here. Well, they're not really boxes. They're more metal containers, but they look better than Amazon boxes. So I've got some boxes here, and we'll just illustrate this with a couple different boxes that we use, like attractive, beautiful, handsome, hot, whatever you want to say. Attractive. It's a box we use. Or funny, or mean, or girl, or guy, or even Canadian. And we'll just have an extra box right there. And so what we do is, as we meet people, we have all these boxes, and we try to put people into boxes so that we can understand them faster. For instance, when I first met my wife, and I'm going to use a teddy bear as a representation of my wife. I hope she likes this one. But when I first met my wife, I was like, oh, she's, she's pretty. So we'll put her into the pretty box. So if my experience with pretty girls has been, well, they're nice, well, then my assumption would be, oh, she's nice. And when my wife met me, well, she thought, he's a jerk. <laughs> Just being real. She put me in the mean box. Because I was being mean to a friend and being sarcastically mean to a friend. And anyways, I flipped that around. Uh, but, but put it into boxes. Or, you know, Johnny is funny. So I'm going to put him into the funny box. So if my experience with funny people is when I'm down, I go to them and they make me laugh and they make me feel better, well, I'm just going to assume that if I have a problem, I can just go to John and he'll make me laugh and it'll be great. Or, you know, Susan's a girl, so she must be a bad driver. It's a bias. It's not true. <laughs> Bill's a guy. He doesn't show emotions. 
Charlie's Canadian, so he lives in an igloo in a frozen tundra. <laughs> Maybe part of that's true. And, and so on and so forth. And we, we just, we label people and things into these boxes. And then what happens is we pick which boxes we like. For instance, well, let's call this guy John. My first impression of John was, well, he's mean. And I don't like to be around mean people, so I want to get rid of John. Who wants John? Any kid in the room want John? Yeah? I'll just throw it to Zoya up here. There we go. Get rid of John. I don't like John. Or if you've had bad experiences with a guy and it can form bias that, well, all guys are mean. So let's get rid of this guy. Or if you had a friend who was really funny and, and they hurt your feelings a lot, well, let's just get rid of this friend. And, and then we, we essentially, we come down to these boxes and we find we, we define who we like and who we don't like, and, and we get rid of the people we don't like. We try to avoid the people we don't like, and we have this bias against them, thinking that they're bad just based on an impression. Here, let's get rid of some more. Some more. Back there. We'll see how well Mike can throw. These are not very aerodynamic. Right here. here who wants the teddy bear representing my wife? <laughs> I'll throw it as far back as I can. Somebody pass it to a kid. And one more. Who wants a unicorn? <laughs> Who wants it? Where? Here? I'll just throw it out this way. Someone can grab that. But it's these biases that we use to label people into boxes based on our first impression of them. And, and really, we do this with everything. We do this with looks, personality, culture, political views, the way people behave, everything. We put people into boxes, and then we select which boxes we like and which boxes we don't like. And the people in boxes that we like, well, we treat well. And the people in boxes that we don't like, well, we either avoid or treat like garbage. And, you know, never has this been more evident to me than if you go online, go on Facebook for a second and look up politics. See, people on one side shouting, you're evil, you're demonic, you're, everything you do is wrong. And then people on the other side are like, no, you're evil, you're demonic, everything you do is wrong. And it's like, really? It's a bias. It's the bias trap. And then what happens is when someone who you thought you liked does something to you that hurts you or, 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 or says something that, to you that hurts you or you do, they do something that you disagree with, our society tells us that that's fine, that we can just use that as an excuse to kick them out of our life. And you know, we as the church can't pretend to be better than that because the church has this great reputation of, of, of segregating people who look differently than us. Uh, of if you don't have as much money as me, you're not welcome here. Of, oh, you sin differently than me? Well, that's a big issue. And you know, I'm not trying to say that we need to, as a church, we need to pretend that sin isn't sin and we need to disregard what the Bible says about certain things. But what I'm saying is, is that the bias trap will make us treat certain people like Jesus would and certain people like garbage. And we think it's okay because we hear verses like Matthew 7, 12, and everything do to others as you would have them do to you. 
Or Leviticus 19.18, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. And, and then we try to weasel our way out of it. Like who, okay, well, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, well, that's great, but who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Because if I know who I can love, then that means I can know who I don't have to love. And, and as soon as somebody hurts us or sins in a way that we don't, or we disagree with their actions, or they look different from us, we disqualify them from our love. You know, by the time of Jesus, this, this passage, the history of this passage in Leviticus 19.18 is fascinating. Because we see God give this to Moses. And then we see, by the time of Jesus, the phrase has completely shifted the rabbis and the religious scholars of the day had taken Leviticus 19 to, uh, and tried to make it fit their own needs. And so they, they would read it as like, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, well, that's easy. I'll love my neighbor as myself, but who's my neighbor? Okay, well, let's figure that out. Well, we're going to go back a verse. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so my neighbor must be people within my nation. Must be people like me. People who follow the same God as me. And, and then they took, naturally took it to the next step. Well, I have to love my neighbor, but anybody who's not my neighbor, I don't have to love, which means I guess I can just hate them. Makes sense. And, and so by the time of Jesus, we find that the, this phrase has morphed from love your neighbor uh, as yourself to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And we find this saying echoed in, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, where Jesus is teaching this crowd of people. And, and in the, towards the end of Matthew 5, he goes through these six different sayings that they believe. And he's just like, you're wrong there, you're wrong there, you're wrong there. You've heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you, anyone who hates a brother or sister shall be liable to judgment. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman in lust has committed adultery with her in her, his heart. And he goes on, he talks about swearing. He talks about, um, yeah, about some different things. And, and he goes on and, and he gets to one. He's like, he, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And I find this one fascinating. Because that's not biblical. That's actually from Hammurabi's code of law. And he's like, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. And he comes to the end and he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And I can imagine the crowd at this point. They had heard these five things that they'd gotten wrong about the Bible. They'd heard these five things that they had misunderstood about the Bible, and, and he comes to this last one, and they're like, yeah, Jesus, this is biblical, come on! This is in the Bible, you can't argue with Leviticus 19. The last one was, yeah, we, we got it from a questionable source, but, but, you know, this one's good. Jesus said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. See, these people had thought that they were following God's law by defining who their neighbor was. But in doing so, they were excluding people who were different than them, thinking that they didn't need to be loved, thinking that they could be treated as different. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. There are no exclusions. Your brother or sister who bugs you 
and picks on you, love them and pray for them. Your dentist who tortures you every time you go in, not intentionally, but you know, love them and pray for them. Your husband or wife who hurts you, whether accidental or on purpose, love them and pray for them. The bullies at school or at work, love them and pray for them. The person who abuses you, love them and pray for them. The person who abandoned you, love them and pray for them. Now, I want to be clear here. What I'm not saying is somebody is, if somebody hurts you, that you just need to put up with it. I'm not saying that God is calling us to live in abusive relationships. In those situations, it is okay to put up boundaries, which is essentially to say, hey, you keep hitting me. I'm going to pack up the kids. We're going to go live with my mom until you deal with your anger issues. That's okay. But what I am saying is in the midst of boundaries to protect yourself, still, still show the person love and pray for them, no matter what. See, Romans 12, 14 to 18 puts it this way. It says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. You know, Jesus said, pray for them. Paul takes it another step, which I really don't like. Because the last thing I want to do when somebody hurts me is to bless them. Last thing I want to do when somebody hurts me is to pray for them. But, but Jesus says, pray for them. And Paul says, bless them. Because you see, it's really hard to hate somebody if you're praying for them and blessing them. Every time the hurt comes up, every time you feel that unforgiveness come up, every time the enemy brings it to your mind, if you stop and you pray for them and bless them, guess what? It stops. So the enemy really doesn't like when we bless people. It's really hard to, be, to hate someone when you pray for them and bless them. You want to start treating people you don't like with the respect that Jesus calls us to? Well, pray for them and bless them. And then Paul goes on. This is a list of things that he actually starts in chapter 12 of how to live a good Christian life. And he says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. That means if people are different from you and you think that they're less important than you, you should still be willing to talk to them, to, or to have community with them, to engage with them. And he says... Do, or, um, do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And I love that phrase, as far as it depends on you, because that tells me that you have to do your part. They might not accept it. They might still treat you like garbage. They still might hurt you and do things that, that hurt you. But as much as is on your side, find that forgiveness. Forgive them. Live at peace with them. Don't be angry at them or hate them. As far as it is on your side, don't let bias slip into your uh, reasoning and affect how you treat others. And he goes on, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. This is the last thing I want to do when I meet somebody I don't like. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And you know, I've heard this passage quoted as like, heap burning coals on their head. They hurt you. Be nice to them because it will make them feel ashamed. I've heard it preached that way before, actually. But it's fascinating. This is actually not a reference to, like, causing them pain, causing them shame. 
This is actually a reference to smelting metals. See, when they would smelt metals, what they would do is they put an impure raw metal into a furnace, have fire underneath, and then they would heat burning coals on top of it so that they could get some more even heat throughout the metal, and that the metal would melt, and then all of the impurities would fall away and be burned. So the point of this is not treat them nice so that they will feel ashamed. The point is, them, is treat them nice so that they will become pure like you. Treat them nice so that God will do something in their heart too. You know, flipping back to the story of David in 1 Samuel 14, or 24, we find this king, King David, well, a future king of Israel, being hunted down by the present king of Israel, Saul. And, and after being hunted for months, being chased down by Saul for months, after fearing for his life for months, he sees this opportunity to get revenge. Saul's busy. He's not paying attention. He doesn't know what, that David's in this cave. David could just slip up and, you know, end him. Instead, David just goes up and he cuts off the corner of Saul's cloak and then he goes back to his men and he says, don't you dare touch him. Don't you dare touch him. He has every right to seek revenge, but Saul is the Lord's anointed. Saul is the king of Israel and David's like, I'm not willing to sin against him. And then after this, after Saul finishes up and goes out, David follows him, and I wonder if it was because of a stench. Small cave. Bowel movements, you know. Just came to me right now. I don't know. My brain is all over the place with Scripture. This is what I love about Scripture, is there's just certain places that I'm like, what? Like, earlier this week, my wife and I, we were really stressed out about some different things in our life, and, and, and um, I was prepping my message for next week, and, and, and in it, it's like, the king, in that story, the king's like, somewhere, place my camp somewhere over here, and I'm like, what? That's pretty precise, or Hebrews 2, it's like, somewhere, someone said something. I'm like, what? Why, why do you feel that's important? Anyways, um, but David, he goes out after Saul, and, and he says, why do you listen to the words of those who say, David seeks to you, do you harm? This very day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you into my hands in the cave, and some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not raise my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your cloak in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your cloak and did not kill you, you may know for certain that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you are hunting me for my life. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand will not be against you. You see, the context of this story is, is to demonstrate that David is the right king for Israel. To demonstrate that David is not the kind of king who would put his own needs first. That he's not the kind of king who would usurp the throne, who would overthrow the last king and take over the throne that he believes is rightfully his in violence, but rather that Dave, David is the kind of king who is gracious, obedient to God, who sought not to sin, even if it was his right. And David was being hunted down by the king of Israel, who he was called to replace, and yet he still decided to treat him with honor and respect as someone more important than himself. 
You know, it's this picture that we ultimately see in the story of Jesus. Where Jesus is in heaven, and he's not content just being worshipped, but he sees us in our struggle, and he comes down to us. And it's even more evident in the story of the cross, where Jesus, he is, he's teaching people, and he's heading towards the cross, and the religious people don't like him, and they stir up this crowd against him, and they seize him, and they cry out, crucify him, crucify him. And in the midst of this hatred, they try to murder him. And as he is dying on the cross, his last words are, Father, forgive them. See, Jesus, was, Jesus did not come to save peop, all, only those who he liked. He came to save all people, even the people who hated him and despised him and wanted to destroy him. Romans 5, 6 puts it this way, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were still broken and messed up and hurt, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now that we've been justified by his blood, now that we've been made right by his sacrifice, now that our sin has been dealt with, will we be saved through him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, if while we hated God, if while we despised God and rejected God, Christ, or we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely having been reconciled, will we be saved through his life. See, Jesus came to earth and he endured hostility from sinners. He endured hostility from people who didn't like him, who hated him, and who wanted to kill him. And he selflessly died on the cross to save all of them, save anyone who was willing to believe in him. And you know, if Jesus could endure such hostility from people who didn't like like him and still treat them with respect and love, I think it's important that we as Christians who are called to be like him do the same. See, it doesn't matter if you like someone or not. It doesn't matter if they've hurt you or you just disagree with them. The calling is that in humility, we regard others, period. There's no qualifiers in that statement in Philippians 2. We regard others as more important than ourselves just as Jesus did for us. I want to close in a moment here with this final passage out of 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3, verse 8 and 9, which says, Finally, all of you have have unity of spirit, sympathy, love for one another, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or abuse for abuse but rather, on the contrary, repay with a blessing. It is for that you are called, that you might inherit a blessing. See, this is our calling as the church. Not to be biased against others, not to be biased against people who hurt us, not to be biased against people who sin differently than us or look differently than us but in love to treat them with respect, no matter what, to treat them as people who are more important than ourselves. 
that when someone hurts you or bullies you or abuses you, that you still love them and bless them. Again, put boundaries in place, protect yourself. God is not calling you to stay in an abusive relationship, but, but in the midst of those boundaries, love them and bless them. That when you disagree with someone or see someone do something that you think is wrong or that the Bible says is wrong, or, or that the Bible says is wrong, instead of judging them, that you love them and pray for them. See, I think this is where church has gone wrong for so many years over the centuries, over thousands and thousands of years where the church has gone wrong and where we've got this reputation of being judgmental jerks is because we haven't treated people who are not like us with love. We haven't treated people who we don't like as Jesus did. And you know, we don't need to be known as judgmental people. On the contrary, we don't need to live that way. In love, we need to treat others as more important than ourselves, even if we don't like them or we disagree with them. And you know, really, it's, it's this kind of love that changes the world. It's this kind of love that brings people into an encounter with God. It's this kind of love that acts as a testimony of who God is and how he sees you and how he sees them. I've never met somebody who's been saved because they were judged into salvation. Those people usually drift off really quick. But the people who come into an encounter with God's love and realize that he cares for them so much and despite their problems, those are the people that stick around. Let's stand together and in a moment we're gonna pray. But as we do, I want to take a moment and, and in a slight way, not exactly precisely what we're going at, but, but in a slight way to put this into practice. So as you're here with your families, I just want to encourage you as I pray over you to lay hands on one another and to pray for one another, to bless one another. Because, you know, families are one of those things where you have to like them, but you don't always like them. So pray for them. It's a reminder of what you need to do when people hurt you, when you don't like people. And then after I finish praying, we're gonna go into the bridge of the song, The Blessing. And as we do, I just wanna encourage you, keep your hands on your family and pray that as a blessing over them, that God will bless them and keep them and provide for them no matter what. Father God, I just, I lift all of us up to you, God. You know that we are weak, we are broken, we are hurting. We have struggles and problems and things that we, we try to deal with. God, you know that in the midst of trying to live better lives that we will fail. But God, I just pray that you will remind us every single day that no matter who comes across our path, whether we like them or don't, whether we think they're mean or not, that we will treat people with respect as though they are more important than ourselves, God. In humility, let us treat others the way you did, showing people love no matter what, that we will be like a city on a hill that cannot be hid, like a candle on a lampstand that gives light to the whole world, Lord, that you will 
use us to reveal your love to others. I pray a blessing over all these people and all these families. God, bless them with your love and your peace and your grace and your provision, God. That every single day they will come into an encounter with who you are. Pray this in your name. Amen.